Greetings, my name is Keats Ross, and I am the host of Pragmagic. Welcome to my inaugural video. I'm going to take this first video to talk about audiomancy. And for the purposes of simplification, let me just define audiomancy as sound sorcery, or the use and creation of music or sound to achieve transcendental states or conform will. And I'd like to read you a piece I wrote discussing my personal ventures into audiomancy over the years and how my uh, creation or practice of the tool has evolved. And this is called Dim the Zim Zoom. And you can find this at wethehallowed.org. The confluence between my dalliances with the occult and my creative process as an artist, especially that as a songwriter, were birthed during my formative years as a latchkey kid in the barrios of New Mexico and Arizona. This once precious Guadalito utilized those wistful after-school hours before any parental figure would return home from work to cast my wanton creativity with loud, unabashed abandon. Each day, I was afforded access to the one thing I coveted the most, my mother's precious and wholly off-limits double-cassette ghetto blaster. Well, I held very little regard for her absent scrutiny, and soon enough, I was immersed in the art of recording radio samples into tape collages. Late night, laying in bed, were spent listening intently to these infantile constructs. They would send me into alien dreams filled with the unseen things and open avenues towards realizing the proto-melodies that have been dancing behind my eyes. To, to solve these psychic earworms, I began cripple-picking and dumb-strumming my second-hand Stella acoustic guitar over the sequences. It may have only been three-stringed with a neck more crooked than the Catholic Church, but it was the perfect tool to exercise those hidden hums. With the tape blistering and the dynamic detritus of no-tempo non-rhythms, I would conjure brilliant cacophony of rhythmic pitter-patters and unnatural mutant melodies. Oh, but then came the words. Then came the words. Words that were hidden within, punching out of my brain stuff that needed to be sung, that needed proper vexing and at proper volumes with a proper amount of gusto. And much to my mother and stepfather's dismay, I began channeling the soft brain glossolalia, screaming and rapping whatever psychic gobbledygook tumbled out of me until phrases would manifest. I'd do this over and over, believing that this was the only way one writes a song, with absolutely no thematic pretense other than what spilled out of you to whatever rhythms you created to do so. These brutal tape collages and their gnawing, discordant guitar movements the unknown language they inspired, these all became my first songs. If you could call them that, anyway. My mother certainly didn't, and decried them as heretic hymns. Much to her chagrin, this proved only to swell the pride of my little shit-kicking self. I can proudly say, though the songwriting process has evolved into numerous factions over the years, the exercise is largely the same. And this would become my most trusted pathwork from my most metaphysical of music. When it comes there 
The metaphysics gained momentum when I began incorporating audio from broken, scrapped, and or trash cassette tapes with the intention to fish for sounds out of the confines of 90s radio airplay. Some crooked little freaks burned Barbies. This crooked bastard would melt and destroy cassette tapes instead, deforming them by the boundless brutality of the desert sun, or purposely fraying the tape ribbon to reassemble them randomly. Wincing away those lonely afternoons, trimming, cutting, and gluing together these polymer sonic fractions of ugly tones and tussles to be made anew when ignited by the Ghetto Blaster's tape. Soon I found myself stumbling into the Beat Riders, full stop. I felt a young kinship, especially concerning the bubbly, improvised, lyrical word salads that accompanied my heretic hymnals or my writing. But it was full solidarity when I unearthed the Burroughs tape experiments that spawned from his and Brian Geisen's cut-up techniques. They would repurpose analog tape recordings into new pieces of art and reveal the subterranean meanings buried within. Did I stumble on a magical method all by my lonesome? Was I drinking from the same psychic tap unwittingly? This was the first variation of the phrase, oh, that's what that is, that became an all too common revelation specifically concerning the metaphysics of my artistic process. Of course, Burroughs and punk rock paved the road to chaos magic which my smirking rebellion bought wholesale. Genesis Peorage of Psychic TV, comic writers Grant Morrison and Alan Moore, hell, even Robert Anton Wilson, all would become my clairvoyers into the world of magical media. These heretic hymnals, as my mother once called them, now seemed cute compared to the blistering work of the aforementioned Psychic TV and groups like Throbbing Gristle and Coil. Chaos Magic's aim to construct a supreme will and intent spoke volumes to me as a guru-less and deeply disassociated teenager. Perhaps my woes might just be a matter of will and not just the damning hormonal biological warfare within my flowering adolescence. But most importantly, it led me to ask, what if I instilled that same intention into any craft, the same intensity of intention, attention, and discipline as I do within the minutia of those songwriting ceremonies and reappropriate that passion towards every avenue of life. Well, I'm still figuring that out, but I'm now past the confines of being a coyote or coyote. But Chaos Magic did propose the foundational art of sigilism. A sigil being a symbol casted with the practitioner's specific intent and desire as a means for quick subconscious calibration to attain said desire. Wait, I thought. So all the will and fervor I put into the ceremony 
the ritual of these sonic experiments actually make them sort of sound sigils. Oh, that's what they are. And as my practice grew as a composer and as a conjurer, these sound sigils became my coded language of personal desires, evidence to the every facet of orchestration and production therein. I would discover personal narratives within collections of these sigils. These collections themselves, of course, become albums. And soon enough, I was creating an epistolary discography that could, in turn, be considered my magical journal or grimoire. Grant Morrison claimed his book, The Invisibles, was a hypersigil, or a dynamic miniature model of the magician's universe. Oh, I thought, that's what my records are. With a young occultist fervor, I would go on to heavily ritualize and log those songwriting sessions. I would rediscover those alien dreams and permeating preternatural nature when I didn't force the pretense of composition, and instead focus on the runner's high of the meditations. I found that cycling through improvised two to three syllable chants amongst the tape loops and discordant guitar strumming conjured a deep meditative state. Replete with fantastic vision. I'd be lost marveling in the psychic purple tetrahedrons that I could manipulate and shoot from my forehead deep in a sonic trance. It was when I rebelliously nabbed some of the secrets of the Transcendental Meditation Movement, or TM as it's widely known, and it was out of protest for them selling their enlightenments for, uh, well, far too much money. I realized that chanting was a major factor. Peter Carroll even touches a bit about this in Lieber Noel and the Cycle Now. As TM and in the sound magic, you utilize a continuous three-syllable mantra to chant during their meditations. Boom, I just saved you guys thousands of dollars. Take that, David Lynch. But most importantly, when I read that people were reporting purple tetrahedrons, as a means to signify that transcendental states were reached, I freaked out. Of course, this is very much likened to the indigo charged third eye chakra found in Hinduism and Tantric Buddhism, but hey, sometimes the mystical is quite literal. And I thought, yep, that's what those are. I discovered the more physical actions my body sequenced with the sounds, the more psychedelic these audiogasms became. To leer deeper and for longer through the void, my ass had to be firmly planted on the ground, cross-legged and anchored to the earth. 
This allowed the chaotic boom hiss of the tapes to gradually dissolve into the somatic self. My chants would congeal and coagulate to reveal hidden intentions in purple pixels. And the guitar or ramshackle pieces of percussion would generate the concussive exhaust of my psychic engine. Soon I was lost in these hidden dimensions that overlay ours. The ones just beyond our eye resolution yet here all the same. The shadow of the somatic self, or now these dark areas of comprehension, or the noirs, uh, were tinged with the fluorescent hue, if you will. They were, but they were also philosophically damning in a way, because of the inherent contradiction within them. They would uh, feel bright with both blemish and beauty, luminous with levity, but lurking with loss. That's when the sound sigils, now transcendental meditations, this audiomancy, would brighten and burn through my sense of self. My identity's foundational structures now shaken, askew, my sense of purpose decimated, but anew. When I took shrooms for the first time, I thought, oh yeah, I know what this feels like. My long since past mentor, Black Tom, a literal Dharma bum who had relinquished his possessions, his doctorate in psychology, along with his practice and his career to become a devout student of the Kabbalah, had told me that these new music meditations were a form of audiomancy, of sound magic, and they were able to dim the zimzoom. He explained, and forgive me for paraphrasing as I am no expert in anything, much less Jewish mysticism, that the Kabbalah describes the infinite, or Ein Sof, as an endless abyss that encompasses all things without rules and the confines of human fathomability, or definition. The Ein Sof is the absolute a psychic tundra of which I correlate to artist and occultist Austin Osmond Spare idea of the underworld, or the neither neither, or which in turn is similar to Jung's collective unconscious, or in turn is also similar to Bell's theorem in quantum physics. They all share this idea that I think I was calling the noirs. And I thought, of course, that's what they are, or that's what it is. So, right? Well, it was this unmediated invisible reality that's wholly inconceivable, where every thought, reality, and emotion exists and everything is permitted in a way. However, for there to exist a shared somatic reality, we all must first afford the ability to fathom the Ein Sof, right? But to do this, and to do this as we know it, there needed to be a contraction of it resulting in allowing most of the infinite to exist beyond the contraction. The noirs, now the everything outside that contraction, or the unknown regions, if you're a Star Wars fan, that lay beyond our natural perception. So for things to exist as we perceive them in this shared reality, there had to be baseline comprehension, right? baseline comprehension of rules and the exclusion of all else thus a place of conceivable matter space and time anyway that's how i understood it please 
comment if I'm completely off. I'm, I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn. Um, in the Kabbalah, they call this contraction of the Ein Sof the Zimzum. Now, the infinite absolute of the Ein Sof is only permitted to the wonderment and imagination of human fathomability. But Tom said that when I use these metaphysical means to make the noirs neon, I perceive the smallest fraction of these super-realities, and I quite literally dim the zimzu, right? Dim the contraction. Oh, so I thought, that's what I'm doing. And from then on, my audiomancy rituals were forever called dims. The preternatural tendencies of these dims reached dizzying highs when I began taking serious aim at various magical methods outside of just the audiomancy. Every time I'd get bigger as a practitioner, my dims got a little more strange. I refurbished a tomb-like womb in my last home uh, from a knick-knack closet into what I term the dimming room or what friends jokingly refer to as my masturbatorium. The autonomy from the outside atmosphere was key when getting weird with this kind of woo. So naturally, when I crowded the room with my magical ephemera, tape machines, a small amp, and a little twin mattress, I could hear the growl of Tom Waits, what's he building in there, every time my friends inquired about the room. And forgive my Tom Waits impression, I don't want a copyright strike. So imagine him every time someone would ask, what's he building in there? I'd get a little more truthful and say an altar, a sacred space to give proper novena to La Nina Blanca, my childhood barrio bruja and heretical patron saint of the outsider. But I became increasingly amused by being more truthful about its purpose as time went on. What's he building in there? Okay, okay, fine. It's a place where I shout baritone commands to Nibirius, the 42nd governor of hell, the crow-slash-dog demon who maketh a man cunning in all the arts when summoned. Okay, well, of course I'm half-joking, but listen, there's no easy way to say I do the magics without sounding a bit like a dick. So sometimes it's just easier to joke about the inherent drama within the practices, or just you know, call it a masturbatorium and move on with the tour. But I digress. It's in this dimming room that the purple drips and creeps manifested into an assortment of unknown and unnatural organisms, burping and breathing, snickering and tickling, wading through the psychic digital detritus, the bleeps and bloops, the signs and the loops now conforming into patterns and meaning as if I was literally re-channeling the noir circuits until the perfect hues created somewhat recognizable patterns, as humans are wont to do, and from those I would be gifted sequences, visions, and or themes. Dims became a serious practice and splintered from that of just the sound sigils that I'd initially resigned its effects to just subconscious spelunking, until the void would begin to generate what felt like other environments entirely. Gardens that would grow into geometric genies, ghosts that flash formed into uncanny beings, 
um, and they would whisper rhythmically at me. Truly, truly trippy shit. And when breaking into the wonderful world of psilocybin, as I previously mentioned, DMT and other psychedelics, I would keep hearing about these supernatural DMT elves, uh, invisible interdimensional keeblers that many DMT users claim to see. I thought, oh, that's what those purple genies are. Consistent visitors became common, some of which I would name and treat like benevolent invisible friends, and some of them would already have names, and they would treat me as if I was an invading hostile. But that's a deeper story for another time. And if you're part of the We the Hollow Patreon, I go a little bit deeper into some of the beings that I would meet during these visions, only to corroborate their existence within folklore and mythology upon research later. When enveloped in the preternatural dark of this dimming room, among my talisman and tape machines, my transdimensional wayfaring no longer resolves that the dimming of the Zim Zoom is just a cacophony-induced seizure. Or they're just waking dreams and subconscious vexings. Admittedly, some might be. But how am I to take the consistent synchronicities as just my subconscious cycling through a waking hodgepodge of incepted imagery? if they mainly occur for me to later discover and confirm. Whether or not conversing with fictitious or actualized unseen beings that may or may not be constructed by my subconscious to anchor and or aid digestion of the unfathomable, whether or not I'm actually surfing the astral planes of the collective unconscious or the neither-neither seems moot. These visceral experiences and their magnanimous correlations to both my personal psychological insights and my learned metaphysical studies repeatedly are made into truths with every artistic work realized. Science and its many rigid absolutes should be left for this reality. A condition of the Zimzum. And as with the conceptualization of identity regarding the practitioner, leave that shit here. Hell, the idea of certainty becomes altogether moot within the tundras of these noirs. And I'll end with a quote that's, yeah, hackneyed and probably overused, and, but all the more fitting. A quote popularized by Mr. William S. Burroughs. Nothing is true and everything is indeed permitted. But that's the only thing for certain. If you'd like to learn more about my audiomancy, or the records that came out of these sound spells, I released an album last year under my pseudonym Dakota Slim called Cactus Crown. It's a concept record I wrote and soothsaid about love and magic that utilizes a lot of the sound experiments, the audiomancy, and the things discussed in this video. You can find it at dakotaslim.bandcamp.com. And if you'd like to support me or the show or these audiomancy practices, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash we the hallowed. I'll have all the links in the description, but a little more on we the hallowed. We're a collection of disparate, occult-minded individual artists that band together under a unifying idea to celebrate and adhere to the artistic process and its metaphysical dalliances. 
please visit wethehallowed.org. You can find not only my writing, my music, but you can find other people's art, visual art, writing, design, poetry. We released a zine. We released an audio compilation. And Eric J. Millar, illustrator at large, is creating his own personal arcana called the Disruption Generator. And it's amazing. And I'll have a link for that in the description below. You can find out how to support the printing of eventual bibliomancy-type arcana tarot reading that he has planned. And we the hollowed, we have a saying, because we are all called haunts. That's one of his disruption generator cards. And that is the only way to achieve immortality is to haunt on long after you're gone through ideas and through art. So that said, haunt on. <laughs>